You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Grace. You can have a seat. Good morning, church. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be in verse 14 uh, this morning as you're turning there. Uh, if you're new, welcome. We're so glad that you chose to Uh, worship with us um, at a time where it's really interesting to come to church. If you're uh, watching online, welcome. Uh, My name is Jamin Roller. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to reiterate a few things before we turn our attention to the text this morning uh, that you heard. Um, If you were here during the announcements, just want you to know we've got our Christmas Eve times coming. Uh, We are handing out, I think, a a little card with those. You can register uh, online. The times are three, five, and seven. Obviously, this year it'll be really important to uh, register for that so that we can know who's coming and make sure we have enough space. Uh, Also want you to know that the Sunday after Christmas, the 27th, we will only have our 9 a.m. service. We won't have our 11.15, just our 9 a.m. service. And then when January comes, the first Sunday in January, we'll be back to normal. Well, that's not true. We'll be back to whatever this is. It's not normal. Um, We are also trying to open up our elementary. And I know that this is preaching to the choir because I look around and half the room's the blue shirts who just served in um, our elementary and preschool ministry. But we're trying to open that ministry back up at the 1115 service, at this service. Right now, we're unable to to do that um, because of volunteers. If we're going to be able to open that back up in January, which would be a huge help, it would allow us to serve our church, both our kiddos and our families. If we're going to be able to do that, we need a lot more volunteers to uh, respond. And so if you are able, willing, have questions, you can reach out to me uh, or one of our uh, next-gen staff. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Um, this is Advent. It's Advent season. You can see the trees behind me, see the God with us on stage. Uh, most of you, if you've been uh, coming to our church for any length of time, you know that this is what we do around this time of year. And typically what I'll say is I'll say something like, turn to Matthew chapter 1, or uh, turn to Isaiah, or we'll look at a a traditional Christmas passage, right? Like, for unto us a child is born, or unto us a, a son is given, something like that. And we're not doing that this Advent. We're not doing that this, this morning and the next two Sundays. We won't be in a traditional Christmas passage. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which even though it's not a Christmas passage, hear me, it is an Advent passage, the whole letter of Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, they are Advent letters. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But every year, we join Christians around the world. So think about this. On countries around the world, our brothers and sisters gathering together with us to celebrate the season of Advent. It falls on the church calendar. It's the four Sundays before Christmas, and it ends on Christmas Eve. And, and the way that I think maybe if, if you're... Um, new to Christianity or new to our church, the way that Advent is typically maybe marketed is kind of as a countdown to Christmas. So you can go to Target, you can buy an Advent calendar, and that's not what we mean as, as Christians. Advent is a season that is designed specifically for us as Christians to remember a really important truth. It's a truth that we cannot forget, and here's what that truth is, that we, you as a Christian, me as a Christian, us together, we are a waiting people. Built into our story, our life, what we believe to be true about what Jesus did and what Jesus will do, we are awaiting people. And so I want to ask you a question this morning, and I'm going to ask you a question next Sunday, and then I'm going to ask you the same question the following Sunday, and I want to ask it to you early on in the sermon 
for us to consider together. Where are you in the waiting? If we're a waiting people, how are you doing in that waiting? Where would you find yourself in that waiting? And what I'm hoping is I'm hoping that it's a question that we can answer maybe with a little bit more specificity this year because of what we've all collectively been through together in 2020. And I'll unpack that in just a minute. But waiting is a loaded word because we experience waiting in a couple of different contexts. So let me name specifically the kind of waiting that we do as Christians. There's a, there's a kind of waiting that you experience that feels really meaningless, right? Like uh, if you're waiting way too long for your food to come to the table at a restaurant, right? That there's a frustration that builds with that kind of waiting. Or if you're waiting in traffic, it just feels like there's no purpose to the waiting. If, you, if you're waiting at the DMV, right, and you're surrounded by these reminders that you're not in control and sometimes people maybe aren't good at their jobs, right? And that kind of waiting is really frustrating uh, because it feels meaningless. There's also a kind of waiting that is filled with anxiety because there's an uncertainty to the waiting, right? Like if you've ever waited to find out if you got the job, there's an anxiety to that because you're not sure what the outcome's going to be. Have you had a COVID test yet? Anybody? So I've done the rapid test five times now where you drive up to the parking lot They come out of the tent, right? And what happens is you drive up, you pull up in your car, and they come out with what looks like a Q-tip, but it's actually just a really small sword, turns out. And they uh, stick that up your nose until they stab your brain pretty thoroughly, and it's awful, right? And then what happens is, is they take the sword back into the tent, and then you're waiting for them to come out with your results. And I've done that five times, and every single one of those times, not only has it been uh, super painful, but there's also been a lot that hinges on the outcome. It's like I had trips planned or sermons planned or family plans. And if that test comes back positive, then all of that changes, right? Now I've got a quarantine. If it comes back negative, I can go back, go on with my day. And so that 15 minutes of head throbbing, waiting for those outcomes is anxiety ridden, right? Because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. There are even more serious iterations of that if you're like waiting for the results of a really serious scan, Or maybe you're waiting while a loved one is in a really serious surgery and that that kind of waiting is so fear-filled, right? The kind of waiting that we do as Christians is different than that. Now, I know that as a Christian, you know those experiences. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the waiting that is tied to the Christian story is not a waiting that's meaningless and it's not even a waiting that is uncertain, but it's the kind of waiting that is unique to what we believe happened. It's a waiting that leans into something that has happened and a waiting that looks forward to something that will happen. So if you've heard me talk about this at all in the last five or so years, there are a few seasons of life that always come to mind when I'm trying to communicate this. And just when I think about it myself, I think about uh, when Carrie and I first got engaged. Uh, I proposed November of 2007. We got engaged July of 2008. And that season was a really unique season of, of, of being engaged. It's a unique season of waiting. There are things to do to prepare for the wedding. There are definitely things that, that change being engaged. But largely, it's a season that's marked by a waiting that looks back at something that's happened and looks forward on what will happen. So I look back on the fact that I asked her, will you marry me? She said, yes. Everyone was shocked. Praise God. And then I'm looking forward to the fact that she'll one day say, I do. And so I'm waiting in between what has happened and what will happen. I also think about the times when we've expected children, specifically Carrie has expected children. We have three kids. She's been pregnant three times. And so what happens is, is there's this announcement. She takes a test. We hear this news. She's pregnant. 
And then we are, from that moment, looking forward to something that will happen. The baby will be born, right? So we're in between that really exciting news and then in between that really exciting event that will happen in the future. And every, if, if you know this, every day, uh, her and baby do all the work, for sure. Just want to get that out there. But every day, we are caught up together in this season of waiting because something has happened and something will happen. And here's what I think is so helpful about these kinds of examples, these kinds of illustrations, is that what's unique to the waiting, hear me, in both of those seasons of life, you already have a little bit of what you're waiting for. It's not an empty-handed kind of waiting. So when I, Karen and I are engaged, uh, we're not married yet, but I have a yes, and I'm holding on to that yes. She hadn't said I do yet, but she did say yes, and I'm waiting, holding on to something, a little bit of a portion of what will come in the future. When, when you're waiting and, and you are, the pregnant kind of waiting is, you know, the baby is here. The moment of conception, there's a little image-bearing human in the womb, but it's not here the way it will be when she is born, right? So it's a waiting that reminds me of what I have and a waiting that looks forward to what I am missing. Okay, brother, sister, Christian, being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, means that you are in that kind of season of waiting. You are a waiting person. We together are awaiting people. And it's the kind of waiting that falls in between what has happened and what will happen. John told us last week that Advent comes from the Latin word, which means arrival or coming. And it's in this season that we remember there are two Advents of Jesus. There are two arrivals of Jesus. One is in the past when he first came, when God was born into the world. The other is in the future when he will return. And we live in between his two Advents. Our life is shaped by leaning into what has happened, looking forward to what will happen. Let me name them. What has happened is God became a man. We were made, all of us were made, the world was made to have the unfiltered, uninterrupted, intimate presence of a holy triune God. Sin has separated us from that presence, but in Jesus we have God with us in the flesh. Jesus is the Christ, the God-man who comes and he brings rescue and he brings peace. Like the song, one of my, my favorite songs we sing around this time of year is O Holy Night. And it says that a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. When Jesus comes the first time, something breaks into the world. King, the kingdom of heaven breaks into the world and it invites you and it invites me to have our sins forgiven and, and to, to be changed because Jesus died on a cross. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. He rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. That has happened. You were born on the other side of that glorious event. And then there's something that will happen. Jesus, who is exalted and lifted high, he will come again. And we will see him face to face. And on that day, chaos will give way to complete peace. And on that day, evil will give way to, uh, to pure righteousness. And on that day, mourning will give way to dancing. And on that day, the waiting that we're in will give way to an eternal, uninterrupted rest. Something has happened. Something will happen. You live your life in between those two events. We are awaiting people in between those two events. And please hear me. This is the kind of waiting where we already have a portion of what we're waiting for. 
What I have, what you have is salvation. You're right with God right now because of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. And the Bible says that I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised with him and I have a Lord and you have a community that won't fade because we belong to a God who will never fail. And we have answers to life's most important questions of why are we here and why does life hurt the way that it hurts? Most of all, we have hope that it won't be like this forever. And we have love, that we are loved right now, forgiven and accepted by God through Jesus, and we have this purpose of enjoying God and loving others and and making disciples while we wait. But we're missing so much. I don't know that, that we historically do a good enough job, at least in our part of the world as Christians, talking about that, but we are missing so much. We're the story's not over. We're waiting. Like, look around. The world's hurting. Not just just a little bit I know of some of the faces that I can make out behind the mask uh, is that there's a lot of hurt even in this room. Hurt that you're experiencing yourself. Uh, hurt, brokenness that's connected to you through a family member or, or, or just, just the, how this last year especially has kind of whittled you down to just feeling overwhelmed and a little bit thin. And, and that's because the story's not over. There's so much that we're missing, peace in all of its fullness. We have a portion of what we're waiting for, but we can look around and we can see all of the ways that the world is still reeling because Jesus has tarried. He's not returned yet. And so we find ourselves holding on to what we've got and waiting for the rest. We find ourselves, if you will, holding on to the yes, waiting for the I do. And the question I have for you this morning, in the next few weeks, where are you in it? If we're awaiting people, how has the waiting affected you? Where where are you in the waiting? And here's what we're going to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is going to be our guide in answering that question. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is going to allow us to get uh, maybe specific with our answers. And and namely, it's going to ask us three questions. One this morning, one next Sunday, and one the following. It's going to ask, are you idle? Are you discouraged? Or are you weak? In the waiting. First Thessalonians 5.14 says this, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. A few weeks ago, we wrapped up our Bible classes. We spent 10 weeks studying First and Second Thessalonians. Anybody participate in that? All right. Somebody in the nine yelled out loud, which was encouraging, and I guess they liked it more than y'all did. Um, So a few weeks ago, we wrapped up that study, and one of the major themes of the two letters to the church in Thessalonica, if not the major theme, is the advent of Jesus. Paul writes to them and says, look, something has happened and something will happen, and it's a really important message for them because, especially if you're part of the study, you know all this, but that church had been through so much. The gospel had come to Thessalonica, and it immediately was met with this wonderful reception from all those that followed Jesus and at the same time was met with this intense oppression and persecution. The reason Paul has to write them a letter is because he couldn't stay there and stay alive at the same time. He had to flee for his life. He writes a letter back to them to check on them, to encourage them. And so much of that letter is filled with him telling a suffering people, remember what has happened, remember what will happen. And namely, would you fix your eyes on what he calls the day of the Lord, the advent of Jesus, the return the second coming of Jesus the Christ. And then at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, he describes what it looks like to wait well, to be children of the light, not children of the darkness, to, to wait faithfully for Jesus. And then in 5.14, 
as he's concluding his letter, he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And what we get a hint of, what this tells us, is that for a waiting people, for some in this church, the waiting wasn't going very well. The Jesus followers in Thessalonica, something had happened and something would happen, but in between what had happened and what will happen in their present, people died, people suffered, they were oppressed, people lost jobs, people lost relationships, some of them left the faith, some were overcome by sin, some were not waiting well. And so it's so pronounced in the church that he takes time in this letter to name them. He offers these three kind of one-word profiles of some in the church, the idle, the discouraged, and the weak. The idle are the undisciplined, the distracted. The, dis- the uh, faint-hearted are those who are discouraged. They've been whittled away. The weak are those who are doubting. They're, they're looking and they're saying, man, do I even believe this anymore? They become weak of faith. And here's why. Because it's not easy to be a Christian in the waiting. In Thessalonica, they were in circumstances that magnified the parts of the waiting that were most difficult. They were in these circumstances where everywhere you looked, you saw signs, maybe even more signs that Jesus hasn't come back yet than you saw signs that he came the first time. And so what happened is, is that they, as the waiting was magnified, they began to drift. They began to wait in ways that were less than faithful. And look, as we walked through, here's how we got here this morning. As I walked through this study with the men's class, over and again, week in and week out, it just felt really familiar, friends. Reading a letter written to a people who were in a difficult circumstance while we have been in a difficult circumstance. Um, different circumstances, but look, 2020 has been this two-sided coin of difficulty and controversy. And anywhere you look, there's either difficulty or controversy, or maybe you see both of them at the same time. And, and what that means is, is that in 2020, for many of us, what's been magnified are the parts of the waiting that are most difficult. And in that, there is the risk. When the waiting is most heavy, the risk is that faithfulness gives way to either idleness or it gives way to discouragement or it gives way to weak, doubting, questioning, do I even believe any of this. And so what we know as Christians is that there's a story underneath the story of 2020. Like pandemics happen because the world is waiting for healing that will only come when Jesus comes back. There's conflict and disagreement and polarization because the world will continue to be divided until Jesus brings the peace that he'll bring only in fullness when he returns. And yet that doesn't protect us as Christians from feeling the weight of some of that difficulty. And what I'm wondering is, I'm wondering if in that groaning, in that longing, it has us maybe more able to honestly assess where we are, to honestly give an account, finding ourselves situated in between the two advents. And so a few months ago when I was teaching specifically this verse to our men's class, I was just struck by how familiar these three words felt. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And I thought, idle, there's been a lot of that in my heart. Faint-hearted, there's been a lot of that. Weak, there's been a lot of that. And so it put words to these things that I've experienced, especially this year. And not just I've experienced personally, if I can be candid, it put words to things that I've just seen in us, in our local body, this local community of faith. I have seen us be idle. I have seen us be discouraged. I've seen us be weak. Where are you 
in the waiting. In between the advents of Jesus, maybe the past several months have drawn out in you and one of these words might be the most honest answer to that question. The question, the, the word I wonder if you'll consider this morning in the, in the 10 minutes that we've got left, are you idle? Has the waiting, especially as it's been magnified, has it revealed a, a level of distraction in you? Here's what that means. The word idle that Paul uses here is used nowhere else in the New Testament, which is unhelpful because that means there's a lot of ideas as to what it, as to what it means, right? Um, but the word is used in other Greek writing to describe a soldier who has fallen out of line or a soldier who has fallen out of rank. So there's something disordered about their life. Paul uh, talks at the end of chapter 4 uh, about uh, and encourages Christians to lead a quiet life and to take responsibility for their own life and to take responsibility for their own relationship with the Lord. And, and so here's what I believe is a fair explanation of, of who the idol are. The idea is that in between Jesus' first and second coming, there are things that you, Christian, there are things that are to mark your life, and there are things that are to mark my life, things that are expected because of what has happened and what will happen. And so for any Christian, someone could peer into your life and say, hey, tell me about this. Tell me about your prayers. Why do you pray? Or tell me about uh, you know, your community group. Why are you involved in that? And what you could say is, well, because something has happened and something will happen. There are things that are a part of your life and those things are a part of your life because of the story that you belong to because your life is situated between the two advents of Jesus. It's, it's like this. When, when Carrie and I were engaged, I worked three jobs. Uh, I worked part-time at a church. I worked at Texas Roadhouse waiting tables. Anybody? It's great. Uh, and then I worked full-time at Criswell College where I, uh, where I attended school. And if you were to ask me, Jamin, why are you working three jobs? Here's my answer. Because something has happened and something will happen. I proposed and she said yes. And what will happen is she'll say I do. And there's this thing that neither of us have that both of us need and it's called money. And so I need to work three jobs so that when we move in together, right, we can actually survive together. I also read a book um, called Love and Respect. It's a book on marriage, super helpful. Uh, and if you were to ask me, Jamin, why are you reading that book? I'd say, well, because something has happened and something will happen. In other words, there were things that were part of my life in the waiting that were explainable and only explainable because of the two events that my life was lived between. There are things that mark the life of a Christian because Jesus came and will come again. And these are the things that uh, are present in our lives, only explainable because we believe those things to be true. The Bible talks about them over again. Paul talks about them in this letter. They're all over the New Testament. There are personal things that you and I do, personal practices like praying to God, talking to God, reading our Bibles, communing with the God who we believe is with us, present even now. There are things we do in our communities, confession, uh, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, studying the Bible together in community, looking for injustices around us that we can meet with the truth and hope of the, of the kingdom, right? There are things that we do corporately together. You're doing one of them right now. Well done. Church together, where we're hearing God's word taught together, and we take communion together here in 10 minutes or so, and we sing songs together. These are things that mark the life of a Christian because we live in between Jesus' first and second coming. Now, we don't do these things to become Christians. We do these things because we are Christians. We don't do these, hear me, if this is all you tune in for, 
We don't do these things to earn God's love. God has placed his irrevocable love on us and Jesus meets us right where we are. We do these things as a response to God's love because of what has happened and what will happen. The idol, the idol are those who have neglected these things. The idol are those, the distracted are those who don't have these practices as part of their life at all. Like the guy who gets engaged in nothing about his life change. There's nothing about his life that you could look to and say, oh, he must be engaged right now because he's doing these things. That's who the idol are. It's the Christian who is Christian uh, maybe in confession but not in practice, right? There is, you, can, you can't look at the idol and see any evidence of advent in their life. Reminded me of a conversation I had Last March, when I was in Israel talking to our Jewish tour guide, if you go to Israel, you'll have a tour guide. They are a government employee hired by Israel. They're some of the most brilliant and winsome people you'll meet. Our specific tour guide, he knew seven different languages, and he was a wealth of knowledge of Judaism, the Old Testament, Christianity, the New Testament, and he could talk about it in seven different languages. So he's just brilliant. He's winsome. And all week long, I tried to have a conversation with him that he didn't want to have. Uh, I wanted to know what he actually believed. Not just all the knowledge that he has, but what does he actually believe? All of the tour guides are, most, are, most of the tour, tour guides are ethnically Jewish. Um, some of them are Christians, Messianic Jews, but most are not. And it's hard to actually know where they land in their own religious beliefs. And so I would ask him here and there a few things, and he dodged me all week. And so finally, I, I tried to pin him down, and, and I just said, do you believe that Jesus is Messiah. And he said, no, I don't, which didn't surprise me because, again, most aren't Christians. But what he said next did surprise me. I said, well, then what do you believe? And he said, I am a non-practicing Jew. And, and what surprised me about that is how he described his Jewish belief. He said he's non-practicing. Here's why that's so surprising. This is maybe tangential, but um, all that's left of Judaism now is practice. All that's left is ritual. Um, Christianity was birthed out of Judaism as a sect of Judaism, and they coexisted for a few decades together. But in AD 70, Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so there's, now there's no place to offer sacrifices. There's no way to offer the ritual prayers anymore. And so all that's left really for a Jew is the practices of you know, reading the Torah, reading the Talmud, uh, going to synagogue, and observing Sabbath. And so here you have a man who has this wealth of knowledge. He knows all of that better than I do. He has this wealth of knowledge in half a dozen languages about a religion that he doesn't even practice, which is another way of saying that he doesn't really believe. He's Jewish by birth, but not by belief. And then he said something to me. I think he could tell that I was really confused. I think he could tell that, that, that I was like, man, how can you be a non-practicing Jew? And so he explained it this way. He said, you know, it's a lot like all the non-practicing Christians where you're from. And I thought, man, there's no way I'm going to tip this guy, right? It was uh, unwelcomed. But I'd never heard that phrase before, non-practicing Christian, but I knew exactly what he meant. Like I knew exactly what he was saying. I, I've, I've lived all my life in Bible Belt Christianity, and what he's saying is this, is that I relate to my religion the way that many Christians relate to theirs. I have knowledge of it, but no participation in it. And the difference, I think, one of the things that I thought about is the difference is that this Jewish man, he has more of an excuse because he is waiting for a Messiah that he's never met. We're waiting for one who knows our name, who died in our place, who, who, 
who loves us right as we are. And our portion of the world is filled with this kind of non-practicing Christianity. So if I could just paint in broad strokes for a minute, being idle is to be a non-practicing Christian, to sit in between the two advents of Jesus, and yet nothing in our life in the in-between points to him or points to what we claim to believe. And what makes it even worse, in, in our uh, culturally religious portion of the world, we have found ways to excuse and even spiritualize our non-practicing Christianity. We've found ways to excuse our idleness. D.A. Carson has this quote that I hate because it makes me uncomfortable, so let me share it with you, obviously. He says this, people do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort, apart from the, the practices that mark our lives. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. If you think about the last year as the waiting's been magnified, or maybe you think about the last few years of your life before the world kind of turned upside down, what words describe you in the waiting? Is idle one of them? Are there ways in which you've been non-practicing as a Christian? There's a couple of, of ways that we could talk about it from here. We could kind of walk through each one, prayer life, reading the Bible, those kinds of things, right? There's a, there's a reality right now where you're in church and so part of your answer to the question is, no, I'm not non-practicing because I'm here, which isn't a small thing. It's been more complicated to come to church in 2020 than it's ever been. In fact, one of the things that I've been so encouraged by for, for much of our church in 2020 is Citizens Church, your resilience in wanting to participate in the body, your, your resilience in wanting to participate in the community of faith, which is meant for, for many of you watching from home. Some of you are doing that right now with all of the distance that's even there and the awkwardness. My family... Uh, you know, watched from home last Sunday, and my two-year-old threw Cheerios at me the whole time, right? So there's these unique challenges to attending church now. And some of you are doing that faithfully, been doing that faithfully. You're here right now, and you walked in, social distance, you're wearing the mask, and right 30 minutes in is the point where the mask is almost unbearable right now. And yet, what has happened is for many, coming to church has been more difficult, and in that difficulty, you've doubled down, and you've dug in, and, and, and praise God for that. I'm encouraged by that looking forward to the time where we can get back to some sort of semblance of normal. But until then, we've endured together, and you've endured together. And so we, we can have that conversation and talk about the individual practices, but, but there's obviously so much more to the question than that. And, and if I were to dig in, I, th I think the way that I want us to consider before we close is, is this. Are your days filled with the disciplines that remind you and reveal to others what has happened and what will happen. If you listen to the Christmas story, and if you pay attention to the characters that make their way into the Christmas story, you've got two categories of people. And by the Christmas story, I mean Jesus. He's born. His birth story, Mary, Joseph, nativity, all that. You've got two categories of people. You have those who were ready for him to come, and then you have those who missed it. 
You have this whole category of people who miss what's happening. They feel threatened by what's happening. Overall, they are idle. They belong to the people of God, and yet uh, one way or another they had stopped waiting for God. They were distracted by something. Idleness is not just us being lazy. Idleness could be us being busy about things that don't matter most. And so you have people who miss the joy, they miss the announcement, they miss the presence of God in the person of Jesus. Then you have those who rejoice and who weep with gladness and whose hearts are filled because they had not stopped looking for him. They had not stopped longing for him. God has made his promises that he will come and they held on to those promises and their lives were filled with the kinds of practices and waiting and discipline which were looking for God to be the promise keeper, looking for God to fulfill the promises that he has made. One of my favorite examples is a prophetess named Anna. We hear about her in Luke chapter two. She has this difficult life. She was married as a teenager, probably 16 or 17 years old. She was married seven years, and then in her early 20s, her husband dies, and now she's 84. So she's been a widow for 60 years, and it says this about Anna. There's also prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never, here's what she did with her 60 years. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. She had aligned her life with the promises of God. She had disciplined her life in hopeful expectation for God to fulfill his promises. And here's what she got because of it. Verse 30, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, spoke about the child of all who were looking to the redemption of Jerusalem. She got to meet Jesus. She got to see him. And so her story is tragedy hit her life. She has 60 years and every year was a faithful year after a faithful year after a faithful year of orienting her life around her prayers to God in the temple. And what happens is, is Jesus's mom and dad don't go to the temple to see her. She gets to see Jesus because her life was already aligned in the place where God would work. She had disciplined her life. She had filled her days remembering the story of God, trusting the character of God. And what she got was the joy of longing, satisfied in the face of the God-man Jesus. And that is a joy she would have missed had she been idle. Eugene Peterson has this way of describing the Christian life. It's not these flashes of quick sanctification. It's not these mountaintop moments where you just become all the things that you want to become as a Christian. Instead, he says, Christianity is about a long obedience in the same direction. Not perfection, there's room for failure, but living this life where I have oriented my life around the story I believe in such a way. You know, one of the questions that that came to mind as I considered Anna's life, the reason she got to see Jesus is because she was already prepared. Her life was already oriented around the expectation that God could come at any moment. One of the questions I had for myself that maybe you'd consider, are my days oriented in such a way that if Jesus came back now, would he satisfy my hopes or would he interrupt my plans? Am I living my life in between the advents of Jesus in such a way that if he were to return today, would he satisfy my longings? Would he fill what my heart is most hoping for? Or would he interrupt me in my distracted living? Are you idle, friend? If the answer is yes, which, spoiler alert, the answer is probably partly yes. I know in my heart the answer is yes. 
there, 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 there is just so much more that I believe the Lord would call me into personally in, in, in the disciplines of my life, priorities in my life. It's really important to remember this, that if the answer is yes for you like it is for me, the beginning place is not with uh, an ambitious you know, goal that you have for this week. The beginning place is to remember what has happened and what will happen. The beginning place is to be called back into the story so that it's from a place of love for the Lord, from a place of God's faithfulness to us that we try to move forward in greater obedience. So can I remind you what has happened? Look right at me, my friend, brother, sister. What has happened is your sins have been forgiven. God became a man. He lived a perfect life. He brought peace, love wherever he went. And then his perfect life is laid down on a cross so that you can be lifted out of all of your shame. You can be lifted out of all of your guilt and you can have an irrevocable present relationship with the triune God who made you for himself and nothing can separate you from that. That has happened. You're given a purpose and you have God's pleasure on your life right now. And what will happen is Jesus will come again and war will give way to peace and doubt to to certainty and you will see your Savior face to face. The one who knows everything about you right now and loves you still will wrap his arms around you and every ounce of waiting, every ounce of faithfulness, every prayer you offer, every passage you read will be found as worth it in that moment. What has happened, what will happen, remember that. And then to shake off the idleness that marks so much of the way that we practice Christianity, would we fill our lives and our days with what helps us to wait well as those who are not waiting empty-handed. Maybe we could do a little bit of that together right now. Would you pray with me? Bow your head, close your eyes. And what I'm going to ask you to do in this moment is to not just be a hearer of the word, but would you be a doer of the word in this moment? And I'm gonna ask you to pray to God. And what I'm trusting in our time together is I'm trusting that the spirit of God who cares as much as I love you, friend, the spirit of God who loves you even more and cares even more that your heart would walk in faithful obedience to God, I'm trusting that the spirit of God maybe brought out something in your waiting. Maybe it, 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 God was to place his finger on a portion of idleness in your life. And here's all I'm going to ask is that in response to God's word, would we not be idle in this moment? But what you, would you turn whatever God has done in your heart in these past 30 minutes, would you turn that into a prayer? Take a moment to offer it to God, to have a conversation with him. Jesus, you are worthy of our lives. You are gracious with our failures. You are honored in our obedience. 
And we, as your people, as your followers, we live in between these two glorious days, one in the past, one in the future. And, and we could be in a lot of places right now. You know, we, we, we could be those who are lost. Uh, we could be those who are confused as to what's going on in the world. But you and your sovereign mercy, the way that you have oriented and orchestrated our lives have led us to a place where uh, not only do we know you, but we're known by you. And we've been loved by you that we might love you in return. And, and so what you're asking of us in the, in the middle of a chaotic time where everything's changing, you're reminding us that you've stayed the same and you're asking us to just follow you in faithfulness. Asking us to be committed to a life where we're not forgetful of what you've done or what you will do, but we're so mindful of it that it changes us. Would you help us? I need your help. Jesus, I need your help. Holy Spirit, I need your help to, to surround Lord, where I would want to lean into distraction or coping or forgetfulness, I need your help to stir me to faithfulness. Would you help us to stir us to faithfulness that, that we, that the, the eulogy that we would be most proud of is the Anna eulogy, that they every day, day in and day out, set their face towards the Lord, waiting for you to meet us. May it be so. We love you and we thank you. Amen.